Hope you had a good start to the morning, yeah? We had some drama in our house. I was getting ready for church, and I hear blood-curdling screams coming from the kitchen. And I'm like, what in the world? Uh, It sounded like somebody was dying. And apparently, I came out, and the cat came into the house with a bunny in its mouth that wasn't dispatched of yet. And so this created great drama among the ladies of the household. And we took care of the problem. But I'm just saying, I don't know about you cat people. It's like this natural-born killer. And you're like, here, come here. Let me snuggle up and kiss you, right? It's like a codependent relationship, you know, with a killer. I don't know. I just don't get it. Hey, but to get us where we're going here and, and to what we're talking about today, let me just, I'll tell you a little uh, story. You know, you probably have a moment in your life where you where you experience something that just feels kind of unjust, right? Where you feel like, I got robbed, I got passed over for something. I had a time quite a while ago when I was still working hard in music and, uh, you know, thinking maybe I could still make it. And we had this opportunity, my band, to open for Switchfoot. And it was actually here in town um, way back when. And they came through, if you don't know, they're a pretty big nationally known band. And so we got this opportunity. We're like, this could be cool. Get to meet them, get to hear it. Who knows? Get your foot in the door. You never know, right? And so uh, we work really hard. We practice till midnight the night before and just get it dialed in and ready to go. And we're literally packing up our gear and getting ready to head over to the venue when I get a phone call. And the big shot Hollywood producer shows up and looks at the stage and goes, "Eh, it's not big enough. Cut out the opening band. And we got canceled last minute. We got robbed. Yeah. So anyway, maybe you've got something. I know that's kind of silly. We still got to meet the band. That was kind of fun. And they're, they're good guys, right? Um, but I just felt like we got robbed, right? Now, a bunch of years later, it, it doesn't seem that important. Apparently, God had different plans for my life. But, you know, when you're in the midst of it, it's, it's a big deal, isn't it? You don't know what's happening. You don't know, like, why events are happening. Or maybe you've had a time in your life, and this is something we'll see in the text today too, where you just felt like there was something going on that you needed to stand up, you needed to speak up, you needed to take action on, and yet there was all this fear inside of you. And you look back and you didn't say anything, you didn't do anything, and it's a regret you have as you look back at your life. I think there's going to be stuff in this chapter when we get to chapter 3 in the book of Esther that's going to speak to you today. In just a second, we're we're going to actually pick it up just a little bit earlier than that in chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off last week because it sets the stage for what we're going to see in chapter 3. And just to catch you up on the story, if you're joining us for the first time, and let me continue to remind you and just encourage you, Summer's traveling. You travel a lot. I know that. Uh, I encourage you to catch up online if you're not able to be here or go to our, our audio podcast and stay up because there's something powerful that happens when a congregation goes through a body of the text like this together. So I encourage you to stay up on that as we go through the summer. Now, to remind you where we're at in the story, in the context of the story, the, uh, the prophets had long warned the people of Israel that if they didn't turn, if they didn't avoid idolatry, if they turned and worshiped false gods, that they would be taken into exile all the way back to Moses. And in 586 B.C., after 
a, a terrible turn to idolatry, God's instrument actually of discipline comes in, and that's the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. And they invade. The, the, Jerusalem's destroyed. The, uh, the temple is burnt and wiped out. And the people of Judah are hauled off into exile in Babylon. And there's actually um, some, you know, some interesting uh, artwork and history that illustrates these kinds of things. And what's, what, what, when the Babylonians invade, they invade on a day that's called the Tishbaav or the ninth of the month of on the Jewish calendar. And this is a very significant day of mourning in Jewish history. And an interesting fact is that actually hundreds of years later, when the second temple would be destroyed and Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Romans, it was destroyed and burnt on the very same day, hundreds of years later, on the Tishbaav in AD 70. God just works in that way. Once again, Jesus had prophesied the destruction of the temple. And it just happens to land hundreds of years later on the very same day. Now, as the people of Israel are, are, are hauled off into exile and wondering, has, is God done with us? Uh, during this time, the prophet Jeremiah, he prophesies that God will bring them back, that God will restore them. And that prophecy begins to be fulfilled in, in 539 B.C. Well, another um, king, uh, King Belshazzar, was in the middle of a drunken, idolatrous feast. A man named Cyrus the Great, a king named Cyrus the Great for the Persians, comes in and conquers Babylon without even a fight. You remember Daniel came in, and this was the writing, the hand that appears and writes on the wall. And it says, your, your kingdom's going to fall on that very night. Cyrus comes in, and while they're partying and worshiping the god Marduk, um, he comes in under the gates, wades up the Euphrates wind River, and takes Babylon without even a fight. And we see... A little bit later then, a couple years later, and we see in history, actually, in the Cyrus Cylinder, which is in the British Museum, that he makes the decree for the Jews, and not just the Jews, some other people groups, too, to return to their homelands because um, that was, you know, the Babylon's, uh, that was the Babylonians' method. Let's haul all these people off into exile. Cyrus returns and says, okay, they're good citizens. Let's send them back. Let's build our strength. And so go home, build your temples, worship your gods, be good citizens, pay your taxes. And so Cyrus actually is referred to because he's part of this plan, not that he's, he's a righteous man, but God is using him to accomplish his purposes as what the prophet Jeremiah prophesied now is fulfilled as the people, a remnant, a, a remnant returns, but only a small remnant returns to the nation of Israel. Most of the Jews at this time actually stay in Babylon where life was a little more comfortable. And so this is where our account takes place in the book of Esther, about 50 years after the decree that Cyrus makes. And it happens in the massive Persian Empire, this, this empire that's taken over almost all of the civilized world, the known civilized world at this time. And what we saw in the last couple of weeks is, is the king, this rich, all-powerful king. First of all, his wife dissed him in uh, chapter 1 at this drunken feast, this lustful thing. He calls her to dance in front of everybody. She says, no way. So he deposes her. And then in last week, we saw in chapter two that basically the, the advisors recommend, hey, why don't you have a giant bachelor contest? 
We'll do a big episode of, ba of Bachelor, Sousa style. And so what they do is they call in all the beautiful young virgins, and they go out and they take them from all these villages around the empire and bring them in. And each one of them will go in and spend one night with, with the king. One of them will be chosen as queen, but the rest of them will go into his harem, never to see the king again, to live out their lives childless, to live out their lives alone, never to see the king again unless he calls for them specifically by name. And that's what Esther is thrown into. That's the circumstance she's thrown into. But God is working behind the scenes. And of course, Esther's chosen as queen because God's positioning her for a very important purpose. And so sometime now, during the next five years, we come to this next scene in Exodus chapter, uh, Esther chapter 2, verse 19. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. Now, here's what's happening. Uh, when you see the gate, I always grew up, maybe flannel graph, um, you know, Sunday school, anybody remember flannel graphs? Yeah, a few of you. Yeah, they're really high-tech illustration things, you know. Um, back in the Sunday school days, right? And so anyway, maybe you pictured him just sitting outside a little gate, just kind of camping out. Actually, what this means, um, what this means is, is the gate of Persia is actually, we've discovered it and excavated it in archaeology. It was a massive complex where business transactions were taking place and legal matters were settled. And when it says that he was sitting at the gate, what it means is, is he had a, an official position in the royal court. So he, he got a job. His, his cousin, who he adopted, his adopted daughter, Daughter, who's actually his cousin, um, the orphan girl, got him a job. And so he's got a job in the royal court at this point. Verse 21. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. This will be um, the first of two recorded assassination attempts of King Xerxes. The second one in 465 will be successful after he has uh, dalliances with his officers' wives. They get angry. They take him out later. Verse 22. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All of this was recorded in the book of the annals of the presence of the king. And so in, in Persian history, if you, you see Persian history, typically when somebody does something like this, saves the king's life, man, there's a massive reward, and they're rewarded right away. Mordecai, although he's given credit for it, and, you know, the queen says, yeah, this was my cousin. Mordecai, he's the one who saved the day. He gets no reward. He's just looked over. It was an injustice. He got robbed. Some of you have feel, felt like that in a situation where you got passed over, even though you know, like you were the hardest working one, you had the most qualifications, you got passed over. There was a relationship thing going, you know, a nepotism thing, I don't know. And you just, you got robbed out of something that should have been yours. There was an injustice there. In fact, it gets even worse. Instead of Mordecai being rewarded, an evil man instead is rewarded and honored in the way that the author of the book of Esther writes this. It's just building the tension in the plot. 
verse, chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, so it's been five years since Esther was made queen, King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamathodah, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. And so we're introduced right now to another character in the story. This character is named Haman. Thank you. And traditionally, when Jewish people hear the name Haman, as they read through this every year on the holiday Purim, which, which uh, uh, commemorates the events of this, they boo every time Haman's name comes up in the story. Uh, so you may hear some of that from the front row to the right. Of my right, your left. Okay. So anyway, we're introduced to this guy, Haman the Agagite. And what's interesting about him is he is the descendant of the king of the Amalekites. And if you remember, if you're with us as we preach through the book of Exodus, there's something very unique about the Amalekites. First of all, the Amalekites were the first nation that came out as God's new covenant people. His people come out of the desert um, you know, through the Red Sea and, and are heading towards Sinai. They're the first people that come against and try to wipe out the people of God. And it's not just that there are people. As you go back and look at the story, there are this, um, this people that's tied, specifically descendants of the Rephaim, which goes back to the disobedient angels that are referenced in Genesis chapter 6. So basically what, what the story is saying, and we'll Talk about that more some other time because it's fascinating, but I don't have time to get into it today. Um, but basically what it's saying is this, this is a descendant. This guy is a descendant of the Amalekites, the historic enemy of the people of God that consistently battles against them, that's tied back to this bigger cosmic battle of the fallen angels trying to work against God and his purposes and his people in, in this world. And so there's a bigger cosmic story going on. That's the point that's being made here. And it's the second time now that we see the power of the empire being used to attempt to demand respect of someone who is not worthy of respect. I think that's a great point. You can, you can demand obedience, but not respect. Respect is earned and respect is freely given. And yet they try to use the power to demand respect. And Mordecai says, I'm not having any of it. I'm not bowing down to this guy. Verse 3, then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he, has told, for he had told them he was a Jew. Okay. So the text doesn't tell us um, explicitly right here exactly why he says no way, but it implies that it had something to do with his faith, the fact that he was a Jew, where he wouldn't bow down to this Haman, the Agagite, the descendant of the ancient enemy of God and God's people, right? So we don't really know why, but we... We know he's not going to bow down. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. He had this maniacal need to, for honor and respect, even though he was not a person who was worthy of it. 
Verse 6, yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Wipe them all out, he says. Verse 7, in the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is the lot, basically, they would cast dice um, for, for divination purposes. The lot was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month, and the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. Twist the story to manipulate the king. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So he's going to manipulate the king. We see this all throughout. This king is easily manipulated by by people with other interests, right? And so first he manipulates, and he's going to butter him up. You see, you remember from last week that Xerxes, the treasuries of Persia, had been completely depleted after the failed attempt to conquer Greece at the battle following the Battle of Thermopylae, big famous event in history. And so the, the empire's not doing good. This is a huge contribution, about 300 tons of silver. This guy's very, very wealthy. And he's going to use his wealth to manipulate and to influence people in power. So glad that never happens today. So what you see is he's manipulated. The machinery of the great empire is going to be put into motion by the manipulation of the king. And this is such a great thing to remember when you look at history. Because there's that saying, those who forget history are are destined to repeat it, right? That when evil people's need for honor and respect are combined with absolute power, oppression and injustice always result. You, you, You see this. This is a lesson in history. There's a saying, I'm sure you've heard it, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's attributed to British Lord Acton in 1887. Power corrupts absolute power, corrupts absolutely. This is what our founders understood, you know, as we're getting ready to celebrate Independence Day in the coming week. This is what our our founders understood when they set up a, a system of government with checks and balances. They understood that the heart of mankind is bent towards accumulation of power, and when that power is concentrated at the top, um, the heart of humankind will use that for their own purposes, for their own egos, for their own good, for their own wealth, and people will suffer. Injustice will happen. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamathada, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with these people as you please. I find it stunning that the king couldn't be bothered to even inquire what people group he was about ready to annihilate. Oh, there's this people group. All right, whatever. Do with them whatever you want. Wipe them out. Sure, wipe them out. I don't care. Verse 12. 
Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, who were the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. And so at this point, the the tension, the author of of this, this book of the Bible inspired by God is building the tension in the plot because the people of Israel are going to be wondering, like, are, are we even still part of God's covenant? Are we part of it? You see, coincidentally, this edict was sent out by all these people on the eve of Passover, which is so significant. Do you remember what Passover was from Exodus? It was that night when they were delivered, when they were rescued, when God says, all you have to do is trust in me, pass through um, or, or walk under the blood of the lamb that's on the doorposts, and you will be rescued. You're mine. You're my people. You'll be saved. This beautiful picture of what Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb, would do for us. But at this point, as this edict goes out to wipe them out on the eve of Passover, the Jewish people who are in exile are wondering, Has, is God done with us? Does he even care about us? Does he even see us anymore? Has he completely abandoned us? Verse 13, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. Did you catch that? Kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day. No mercy. Complete genocide. I don't know what you call that if not just plain evil. Evil. Verse 15, the couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Crazy story, huh? Crazy account. What do you do with that 2,000, 2,500 years later? What can we learn from that? As I read through this and, and studied this week, I, there, there were three things that kind of stuck out to me from this passage that I think apply to us. The, f- the first one is the universal experience of injustice, of personally experiencing injustice and wondering, where God, what, where's God at in the middle of this? I don't understand life. See, Mordecai's lack of reward was a terrible injustice. It just been passed over, right? In fact, instead, the wicked person prospers. I'm sure he was thinking of what the prophet Jeremiah had said as he's arguing with God and going, why, did the, why does the way of the wicked prosper? He looks like, I try so hard to serve you, and yet look at, look at the wicked one that hates you and hates your people, and why do they prosper? And then you have Esther. I mean, she was taken in for her body to be used by the king. No one ever thought to ask her, you know, what plans do you have for your life? What are your dreams? What are your goals? Maybe they were too in this culture, right? Maybe the plan was, hey, I just want to be a godly wife with a home and a family. Nobody asked her. 
Nobody cared. However, in the midst of that injustice, we're reminded that God is still at work. That God still has a plan and a purpose. Last week, we looked at that incredible scripture, Romans 8, 28. God works for the good of his people throughout all things. Doesn't mean life's always easy or we always understand it. But we can be assured that God is working, that he's still on the throne, right? And what we're going to discover as we go through is had he been rewarded immediately, there would not be the opportunity for the deferred reward to come at a crucial point in the story that would later save the Jews from the threat of genocide. And even when circumstances are unjust or our actions flawed, we talked about this, how, how some of the rabbis look at like Mordecai and Esther and go, well, why didn't he take her and flee instead of letting her you know, go to the king's harem? Doesn't make sense, right? Why, did, why wouldn't he even give up his own life? He wasn't as bold as Daniel or Shadrach or Meshach and Abednego said, you can throw us into the fire. And yet he stood in his own individual way. And sometimes even when our mode is when we're not sure what's the right thing to do, we do our best and we look back and we go, gosh, I don't know if that was the right decision. I probably would have done that differently if I had it to do over again. Even in the midst of that, God is working. God is working. He can, he can use that to accomplish something for his kingdom and his purposes, even when we don't understand the circumstances. You remember when, when John the Baptist is, is locked in prison wondering, like, what in the world I was God's prophet, and he's locked in prison, and he sends disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the one? And Jesus says, blessed are those who don't stumble on account of me. In other words, I'm not going to bust you out of prison, John, but yes, I'm the one. Your circumstances, you may not be able to see it right now, but I'm still in control. This is all part of my purposes and my plan. In the midst of Mordecai getting passed over, God was at work. You know, most of us like to think that, that through thoughtful planning and wise living, we can successfully direct the course of our lives, right? I think if 2020 taught us anything, it's like maybe not so much. Now, there's great proverbs. There's ways you can live that, you're, you know, are going to set you up for success in life, right? That's what the book of Proverbs is about. When you align your life with the, the way God created the world, life goes better, typically. But they're proverbs, not promises. That means we still live in a fallen world. And some of you, you feel the pain of that because you, you raised your kids to follow God and, and, you know, to the best of your ability, and, and, and that didn't happen or hasn't happened yet. Keep praying. Keep praying. There's circumstances in life we don't know. We don't know. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, says this in James 4. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go do this or that city. We'll spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why do you not even know why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. This is something I try so hard to keep in my mind as I'm making decisions, as we're, you know, thinking about next moves and things. Is God, this is all yours. I remember when we moved into here with only a, a nine-month lease, you know, not knowing if 
what would happen, it was like, okay, I, I said, we're going to hold this with open hands because we don't know what God's going to do. And that's the way we need to live our lives is going, God, here, it doesn't mean we don't plan. It doesn't mean we don't take action. It means you factor in the fact that God is the one and the only one who can see the future. And you don't know. And in the midst of circumstances that feel just lousy today, you don't know how he's working. But you can identify. We can identify with Esther and Mordecai in this scene. The second thing I think that just stuck out with me is, is the necessity to stand against evil. I believe as followers of Jesus, we're called, the church is called, as you look at the role of the church throughout history, to have almost a prophetic voice. So it's the call of the nation of Israel to the world was to be this light, to shine the light of God. The church, as we come together, the church as a whole and our lives individually are called to shine the light into different situations we encounter in this world and to stand against things that are evil. That's found in that last part of, of James there. It says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So many times we only think of sin in the context of, like, I shouldn't have done that. You know, I was a jerk there. Uh, yeah, shouldn't have cut him off there and used that hand gesture. Um, forgive me. And that's good. Ask for forgiveness from that stuff and, and accept his grace and, you know, move on. Let the Holy Spirit sanctify you and help you do better, right? But a lot of, uh, James tells us actually it's, there's, there's times when you know the good that you ought to do and yet you hold back. You know the place you need to stand up and yet you, you shrink back because of fear. You shrink back because of all these things. Man, we live in a culture. Have you ever noticed when you post a thought on social media sometimes? Now, some of you, you post it in such a way um, that you deserve the response you get. Let me just say that because there's nothing graceful or loving about it. Um, but others, you just post an opinion in, in a graceful way, and you notice the, the blowback you get, right? And you're like, I'm not going to say anything again. I'm just going to avoid any topics. See, there, what we see in Scripture is there's the reality of evil in this world. We see it since the fall, right? One of the first things God says to Cain before he kills Abel, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door, and you must overcome it. That there's something ever since the fall of humankind in the heart of mankind that is bent towards selfishness that leads to evil. Jesus says this in Matthew 15, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. He says that all, that's all stuff that emerges in the heart. We're told in the scriptures, the heart is deceitful beyond all things, which is why I often tell young people in the room, don't listen to your heart, listen to your mother. Because your heart will likely lead you astray. Your mother probably knows what's best, okay? It's just good advice, I'm just saying. Because it's true, our heart wants things and our heart deceives us easily. And our heart can lead us into places that we, we, we think we'd never go. And yet we wake up one day and we go, how did we get there? How did we get there? We see in history and in Scripture the reality of evil that's not just in the heart of humankind, but it's 
animated and fanned into a flame by the existence of a real enemy, the enemy of our souls. Jesus says about Satan that the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his MO. That's how he works. That's his priority. In fact, in Revelation, we see this, this idea behind um, the one that's known as the beast. It says the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. There's an animating force. And this is something you see over and over in empires of the world, in great evils of the world. It's almost like there's an animating force behind the evil, driving the evil on. And that's because scripture tells us there is. You see that in threats against God's people throughout history, right? All the way through, whether it's the first Amalekites that come out to battle the people of God, and there's more going on than just two people groups. It's tied into this cosmic battle. You see that in Scripture. You see that throughout history. You see that in Nazism. There was all sorts of occultic practices, if you go back and read history, that Hitler was into and Nazism at the time. There was an evil that animated that, that pushed that on. Anti-Semitism, racism of any kind is evil, and it's animated by evil. You see over and over the Jewish people, God's people throughout history, and later in the church, you see the forces of the enemy coming against them. In fact, the the very existence of the Jewish people now, you know, 2,500 years or so after Rome destroyed the temple, in 70 AD and hauled the Jews off to all various parts of the, of the world. It's, it's a miracle that the Jewish people even still exist as a people group. It's a testimony to the preservation of God. I believe that firmly. I, I t- titled this talk, uh, Haman, Hitler, and Hamas. Because there's still groups in this world that, that their stated platform and mission is to annihilate and wipe out Jews from the very face of the earth. It's, it's an evil we see, but it, it wasn't just the Jewish people. It's, the early church and Rome illustrates this well. See, the Roman emperors began to demand respect, but not just that. They demand to be worshipped as gods. They, they considered themselves gods. And so to, they demanded that incense be, be burnt in their honor and that people would worship. It was called the imperial cult. And not everybody took it seriously. Like, oh, yeah, they're not, they, they didn't really think they were gods. It's just sort of a thing. But Christians, they couldn't bow down and worship the emperor. They couldn't offer incense. Because why? Because Jesus is Lord. And there's no other Lord. And so the Christians saw the demand of emperor worship to be in conflict with their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And the Jews actually had a special dispensation because this was such so like anathema to them. They didn't have to participate. And so a lot of the early early churches, the synagogues began to kick the Christians out. And you you began to see this rift between um, earlier followers of Jesus who were Jews and Gentiles. And many more Gentiles came to Jesus. Um, They began to be persecuted in incredible numbers in the first and second century. And they would, they would pay, like the, the penalty was death for treason because they wouldn't worship the emperor, but they stood. 
You see this even in the last century in modern persecution of Christians around the world. Did you know that every year in the 20th century, there were an average of 300,000 Christians who were martyred around the world? It's stunning. The Apostle Paul, as he writes the revelation to, um, to people that are suffering under Roman persecution in the first century, or John, rather, um, the Apostle John, he writes the revelation, and it was in part to encourage the Christians who, like the Jews in Susa, found their existence threatened when, when the government around them began to persecute and try to annihilate them. In fact, this was an encouragement in Revelation chapter 3. He said, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for the patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Now, whether there's past, present, or future application to that, one thing we do see in history is the reality that Christians suffer. And life isn't always easy, right? You have to confront the reality of of evil in this world. And we're so sheltered from so many of these things today. There was great evil in the last century. Under a lot of uh, utopian-sounding things of, you know, equality, you know, the proletariat going to rise up against the bourgeoisie and, you know, power to the people, that kind of thing. Under these kinds of ideas that are tied back to Marx and Lenin and some of these people, terrible atrocities were were done. Why? Because power was concentrated at the top, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And what you saw is instead of it creating the utopia that it was supposed to create around the world, both under fascism, Nazi fascism, and under socialism and communism in China, there were 100 million people murdered in the last century under these ideologies. Terrible evil. Many of those followers of Jesus. Because they failed to, to, to take into account the root condition of sin in the heart of humankind. Another great evil that we don't talk about too much. Since, since 1973, there have been over 60 million abortions just in the U.S., You see judgment coming on the people of Israel in part because of thousands of babies that were offered to Molech as a sacrifice. Our nation alone has sacrificed 60 million. And and let me just say, if you're you're, you're one in a a big room, those online, chances are somebody... uh, has made that tragic mistake or sin in life. There's grace. There's forgiveness. That's the gospel. But it doesn't mean that we as as a culture are supposed to just stand back and not say, hold the mirror up to society and go, this breaks the heart of God. As Christians, we're called to stand up. We're called to not just speak out. We're called to move with compassion. If that's something that's passionate, a passion on your heart, get involved in helping. Get involved with ministries like, you know, the Pregnancy Center and different things that are working in that area, right? Don't just speak out and be a loud voice. Move with compassion towards people that are struggling through those decisions right now. 
But I tell you, there is a pressure in our society to stay silent in the face of evil. Just like in Susa, you see, they're bewildered. But you know what? Everybody was terrified for their lives. With this brutal king, nobody wanted to stand up and say anything. I'm sure the voices all over that city were like, what, the Jews? I'm friends with Jews. Hey, that's my shopkeeper. Hey, that's my buddy. We hang out. What, What are they talking about? These are good people, right? But why wasn't there a massive public outcry to say, you can't do this. This is ridiculous. Because everybody was afraid. Everybody was afraid. Same thing happened in Nazi Germany. As the Nazis came in and took over power and began to install their people in the church in different places, everybody was afraid. They saw what happened to people that resisted. And so while um, terrible atrocities, while 12 million people were being wiped out over the course of the next few years, the German people as a whole were silent. And churches all over Nazi Germany were silent and didn't, didn't. Python, why? Because they were afraid. They were afraid. In fact, there was a, a great uh, man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've got a book up here. In fact, we're going to start something new uh, this summer. We're going to start doing a book of the season. I thought a book of the month, but we'll start out slow, okay? Book of the season. You can, you can do that. This is Bonhoeffer. It's a classic. And I'm actually reading it for the first time this summer, but one of, my, one of my friends who I respect a lot, he told me he reads this book every year because he sees so many parallels to modern history. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a, a pastor, a martyr, a prophet, and a spy. He gave his life because he stood up to Hitler. He was a great theologian. And he, he said things like this, that silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. His last words were this. This is the end for me, the beginning of life. That's his last words before he gave his life. He was executed executed in the Flossenburg concentration camp by the Nazis. He also said this about his faith. You remember Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. It's not a very popular message. That's not how you fill up auditoriums. You know, it's like five tips to a better life. That fills up auditoriums. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Paul said, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Bonhoeffer said this, the cross is not the terrible end of a pious, happy life. Instead, it stands at the beginning of the community with Jesus Christ. Whenever Christ calls us, his call leads us to death. It's not a happy, cheery message. But the truth is we've been called to stand for something. We've been called to live for someone. We've been called to give our lives for a kingdom, and it's not for our little kingdoms. It's for the kingdom, his kingdom. And it's worth everything, even if it should cost us everything. This is something Bonhoeffer knew. The third thing I see in the scripture, and, and I think it's so beautiful, is the assurance that Jesus is king and nothing will stop his reign. See, this is what, this is what gave Bonhoeffer the courage and all the apostles the courage 
almost every one of them, to die a martyr's death for Jesus because they had seen him risen and they knew that his promises were faithful and true and they knew that he was coming again. In fact, the apostle Peter got up and preached one of the most epic sermons in the history of the world just weeks after Jesus' resurrection. And part of that, he said this, as he's, as he's speaking to the, the actual people who, who murdered Jesus, he says, now, fellow Israelites, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that Messiah would suffer. In other words, you meant it for evil, but God had a plan. He meant it for good. God came himself in the, in the form of a man, the, third, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, to give his life and die, to fulfill everything that was written in the Scriptures. He was working. He was in control. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. See, the greatest injustice in the history of the world occurred to Jesus. It was the most concerted evil, but God turned it around and used it to achieve the greatest work of atonement, the great work of atonement. He worked through the injustice. And that's such a beautiful thing. And that's why we today can face the powers of the enemy can face anything that comes at us is because he is in control. The, the one who is the true king of kings and lord of lords has the victory and will have the victory, and no one will stop that. There is no power, there is no enemy that can ever thwart God's purposes. This is what you see right here, developing in this incredible story, in the book of Esther. Would you stand? And as we close, let me just remind you that the beauty of the gospel and what Jesus did for us is exactly that there's grace and there's forgiveness. And nothing you have ever done, nothing you will ever do um, can separate you from God's love if you fully trust in him and ask him for, for, for forgiveness. It's the beauty of the gospel. And it's his power at work in you that gives you the ability to live in such a way like these apostles did who gave their lives. And if God ever, I pray not, but if ever we should land in a situation where we have to choose who we will worship, we will choose correctly, and we will stand because of his grace that gives us the power in that moment. And you can experience the freedom and the life and the, and the peace and the joy that comes now, an eternal life, a life that will last forever by embracing him and putting your faith and trust in him. So let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. And if that's you, I just invite you as I close in prayer, just to call out to him in your own words. Oftentimes I say, say this prayer after me, but just use your own words. Confess that you're a sinner and you can't make it to God on your own. Ask him for his forgiveness and his grace. Say that you believe that he is the son of God, that Jesus is the son of God, that he died and rose again for you. And commit your life to following him. And if you did that, if you're doing that right now, you're his child. It's a promise. And Lord, for all my other friends right now, I just, I just want to pray and ask that 
you would give them your grace, that you would that you would give them um, just if they're in a situation where they're wondering, where are you, God? This feels so wrong. Would you give them strength to know that you're, you're at work? You're not off the throne. You are on the throne. Lord, those that maybe are in a situation right now where they're fearful of standing or fearful of standing for your kingdom, give them the grace to do that in a way that's full of love, full of truth, full of grace, full of love for the culture around them. And would you remind each one of us that you are on the throne, that you died and you rose again, you conquered death, and we have the greatest promise in the universe. We love you. We worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.